You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone in Fort Worth. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone. Today, I'm joined by my co-hosts, David Wilson, who's our student pastor, and Bobby Harrell, who's our lead pastor. And together, they have been delivering content from the book of 1 Corinthians as we study what this letter is all about and really try to engage in it in a way that helps us to understand how it applies to us. We hope you're enjoying this content, and we hope that you're engaged in the discussion that we're having. We'd love it if you would send any questions that you have as you listen to 817-809-3040. As you see today, we're gonna take some of the very best questions. We're gonna answer them to fully expound upon the content as you guys are asking them. So again, text us your questions, your feedback, and your comments. We hope you're also really enjoying our Sunday morning series as we go through the content of 1 Corinthians and all of the social media posts that have gone out to support our study. Okay, so first thing, before we really get into the content of chapters five and six, we got a listener question that I think is really good clarification for what we talked about last week, talking about the differentiation between capital A apostles and lowercase a apostles. So I'm going to read this question, and uh, maybe we can touch a little bit on that, further clarifying the podcast from last week, and then we'll get into the content of five and six. So the question from our listener says this, my question is about capital A apostles. I always wondered how important apostleship really is. Paul seems to put emphasis on his status to the Corinthians, but maybe it's just a mark of authority to misbehaving children, or maybe it's more. Jesus tells his disciples that they believed because they had seen, but those who believe and have not seen are even more blessed. All the apostles, with capital A, are those who have seen, so it's almost like a demerit, though I don't know what the greater blessing that Jesus is speaking about would be. So this question goes on to ask, really, how important is the differentiation between capital A apostles and lowercase apostles, especially given the fact that the apostolic ministry was something that many people who weren't those original 12 were empowered with? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's do it as quick as we can, because we've already addressed part of this. Yeah. But we're calling it uppercase A, capital A, and yeah. lowercase A, apostleship. What we mean is the first 12 were mm-hmm. clearly installed into an office by Jesus from these disciples. He chose 12 whom he named apostles. The word means sent once. It's very clear that he intends for them to be sent. When this discipleship process mentoring is over, they're going to be sent somewhere. Obviously, they knew that when he started calling them apostles, but they didn't understand, I think, the full scope of it until the crucifixion and resurrection and the 40 days after he tells them to tarry in Jerusalem until they be empowered with the spirit. And then dot, dot, dot. Well, and then they're going to be sent with the gospel to go make disciples and advance the kingdom of God. So it's interesting that the question that you just read, used the word authority in there. Mm -hmm. It was the authority of the apostles. And And I think that's fair because in Matthew 28, Jesus comes to the gathering of disciples gathers them together. He's already risen from the dead. And in Matthew 28, here's how he opens what we call the Great Commission. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. In that authority now, I now commission you, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, it's not just the 12 to whom he's speaking, but it it is the 12 also there. But whoever's there at that commissioning, the capital A apostles, other disciples that are going to be sent ones as well, are all hearing that. And now in the authority of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. all authority is given me in heaven and earth. By the God of the universe, (laughs) I commission you to go, and you're now sent officially, if you would. And they they did have his authority. Mm -hmm. And again, they're going to be questioned. Mm -hmm. When you now go to throughout the the known world, and let's say the Greco-Roman, the Roman Empire, proclaiming that the Messiah, the Son of God, has come in human form to the earth. He has brought us the new covenant in his own blood. We now have the possibility of having our sins forgiven and a relationship with God through this Messiah called Jesus Christ, who worked miracles and raised the dead. Don't you think you're going to get some pushback? And so these people were able to say, we were there, we were eyewitnesses, 
we actually participated in the miracles, Mm -hmm. whether it was in the home where the little girl is, we're right there, or whether it's the distribution of the bread and the feeding of the 5,000, or we were there. Peter, I've walked on water, albeit (laughs) short-lived, but nonetheless, I can tick a box that no one other than Jesus can tick. Yeah. Uh, of all the people who've ever walked the, the planet Earth. Well, and let, me, let me say it this way. Who is most able to tell my wife's story? It would be me because I know her the best. Yeah. I've spent every day with her. I know her history unlike anybody else does. Let, let's just say if I wrote a book about her life, yeah, it would be an abridged version. But I'm the most qualified person to tell that story. Sure. John writes in the end of his and gospel would, message. you wouldn't write down everything no, y'all ever experienced. It'd be impossible. The highlights. Yeah, it would be the highlight, And I would know those uniquely and how they fit into context. And, and it would give you a great picture of, of who Rachel is. Yeah, you have a very specific That's to right. be able to speak to her circumstances. Which is exactly what the apostles are. And John, at the end of his gospel, writes that there's just no way we could have written all this. It would have filled every book in the whole world. There's just no way we could have written everything that had ever happened. But we know that this man personally, therefore we're uniquely tasked and gifted to be able to convey this story in a different way that others can't. We are an authority on Jesus. We we lived with him. That's right. We were his closest human friends on planet earth. Yeah. We are his disciples. He loved us. He cried over us. He prayed with us. We know this man intimately. He is the son of God. We saw him after he was crucified. We lived with him for a month after he rose from the dead. Let me say it in different terms. This is the power of an eyewitness. Right. And again, in American court, let's just assume that our listeners would hold the American judicial system as the gold standard of the world and the gold standard of history. Not saying it doesn't have some flaws, but you get representation, you you know, the due process, Mm -hmm. you know, you can request a trial by jury of your peers, all of these things. And the laws of jurisprudence in America place an incredibly high value on eyewitness testimony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If two or three people are eyewitnesses to an accident, an injustice, a crime, whatever, and these two or three witnesses can reduce their testimony to writing called a deposition, and they can go and testify in court, and witness A says, I saw it like this, witness yep. B said, I saw it like this, witness C says, I saw it like this. And their testimony agrees it will stand in a court of law because there is, I mean, that will convict or acquit right there. That eyewitness testimony, it's a a lawyer's dream to have eyewitness testimony that all lines up with each other. This is what you have in the apostles. You have eyewitness rock solid evidence that would stand in a court of law to the resurrected Christ being the son of God. And that is exactly the message that they gave then in the book of Acts. His resurrection declares him to be, he was declared to be the son of God with power of the resurrection from the dead. Anyway, it's important that they were capital A apostles. Now, I don't want to diminish the lowercase apostles, because if the capital A apostles are all there are, then Christianity dies in the first century when they die. Well, and we know that that's not the case because one, Christianity has continued and flourished and thrived. And also the Bible specifically mentions other lowercase apostles. Yeah, as being important as well. As being important. Well, and again, we go to Romans 16 where not just important, but the guy who we would consider the prince of the apostles, I mean, the, the, the gold standard of apostles, the apostle Paul, now is bragging on what we would call a lowercase a apostle, a woman named Junia. And he's saying about her, she's the gold standard of apostles. Right. I mean, she is, she is awesome. Yeah. And they have just risked their lives, been in prison. They were Christians long before I was. These are people who have, have really, again, and, and where are the books written by these people or about these people we just don't have them. and all of their apostolic deeds? We just don't have them. They, they were not preserved in history for us. God saw that. What we have is what we, he wants us to have. Yeah, right. Again, we don't have the Bible we want. <laughs> we have the Bible God chose to give us yeah. for specific reasons. But I don't want to diminish yeah. lowercase apostles means there are generational people yeah. still being sent in every generation to proclaim the gospel. And if even if you limit apostleship to pioneering, you know, risk-taking work, that still happens though in every generation yeah, and right. it should not be minimized. So, you know, there's some schools of thought, Jeremy, I heard you talking about this, you know, in one of our staff meetings that prevail about the time of the apostles have, have ended with the capital A's. I don't remember exactly how you articulated that, but one school of thought says that the capital A apostleship ended with, let's say the apostle Paul, and now there are no more apostles beyond that. 
that's very limiting to the Holy Spirit to say yeah, that. Right. Well, yeah, and, and so what, what the, the idea is that at the end of the apostolic age, when Paul dies or whoever, whoever the last apostle is, John, whoever it is writing, you know, from that on the Patmos, at the end of that, there are no more sign gifts. I put that, that in quotes. You can't see, obviously, as you're listening, but I put that in quotes, sign gifts, which are healing and prophecy and, well, I think tongues is, yeah. is among Other that. traditions would call those revelatory gifts sure. as well. Yeah. So so those those specific gifts, people will say, that we know for sure they have ended at a specific time at the end yeah. of the apostolic age, which, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that we should limit the Holy spirit in, in any certain way at all. The spirit moves as it wills in whatever culture and whatever time, however it should in order to best progress the message of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end of that, so that's one maybe abuse of it. On the other end of that is we are a part, I'm a person, a part of the continuing line of the capital a apostles. So therefore you have to listen to everything I say. Yeah. Everything that comes out of my mouth is brand new revelation from the Spirit. With the same authority as Paul. As if, if Paul right, or Peter John. said as, yeah. And again, this is one reason people have taken issue with the Catholic Church's abuse of authority. Right. Because the Pope, again, the highest position sure. in the Catholic structure, sits in the chair of St. Peter. Right. And the reason there's a reason it's St. Peter's yeah. chair in the Fisherman's Ring. St. Peter's Basilica. There's a reason they keep alluding to St. Peter because the actual claim is that whoever the Pope is, the vicar of Christ is that living, if you would, voice of Christ here on the authority here, Mm -hmm. the continuation of the capital A apostles with us in every generation, you know, embodied in the the authority of the papacy there, there in Rome. You know, there's some extreme abuses of power in, in every school of thought here. And what we're saying is we believe the work of apostle, again, sent to proclaim the gospel, sent to expand the kingdom of God, sent to make disciples. We believe that authority is still alive and well. We believe the Holy Spirit is still working. We're way, way out of our lane, way out of our authority structure to be telling the Holy Spirit. Sure. You can or can't. You can or can't heal somebody. You can or can't communicate in this way. You can or can't reveal something. You can or can't, I'd be very careful. Yeah. And I'm learning to be very careful about saying things sure. that limit the power of God. Yeah. Correct. And obviously it all is all in subjection to scripture. Of course, of course, uh, we, of course, that's, that's understood. A, that's a default yes, for us. Of course we understand that to be true. But, but again, to limit the Holy spirit, it is a problem. And, yeah. and so I, I think, so you use the word apostolic age. See, right. and I even bristled over here just a little bit, but I understand yeah. what you're saying. You're yeah. saying when, when the original, yes, 12, 12, yeah, plus, plus Paul yeah. thirteen. But you know, but yeah, when the original batch have passed right. from this earth onto heaven, right? You know, calling that kind of a end of the apostolic age. See, and I just want to, yeah. And I get that, sure. But I also say, well, did the Holy Spirit leave then? Right. I mean, so people aren't sent now. Yeah. No, you just what you're saying is one batch of eyewitnesses have gone to heaven, sure. divinely appointed by God. And listen, they all. We're not sure about how John ended sure, things, sure. maybe in exile or maybe being restored, but certainly suffering some abuse at the hands yeah. of Rome. But the point is they all died. Yeah. They were martyred. They were abused. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, even Paul in his calling talks about in Acts in his testimony, you know, God showed me right in my conversion, right in that same time frame, how great things I must suffer for the gospel's yeah. sake. Those capital A apostles, well, what did Paul say last week in our text? We come in last in the procession. That's right in the big parade into the Colosseum as those about to be fed to the lions. Everyone's garbage. We are garbage of the world, a spectacle to men and angels. We were appointed to die. Right. Boy, now there's a sobering thought. That's a heavy thing. You say, man, I want to be an apostle. Do you? (laughs) Right. Do you really? What it meant to them was the same way they abused Jesus and and murdered him on the cross. We can expect some serious blowback for championing him as the as the king and, and messiah yeah. that we've been looking for and they died for that now again people are still dying for their faith absolutely mm-hmm. so that hasn't ended nope but those people had a little special eyewitness they had a absolutely. special authority yeah. we recognize that but don't diminish god is still working right that's now that's right and that doesn't create a tier structure where the 
capital A apostles are better than us or we're better than them. I, I don't think that's what the no. idea of blessing means. I just think it means that God has a special heart, a special favor, a special love for. I don't think that it has anything to do. And, and though, again, with, we're dealing with this language from right. the questioner who gets it from the text. We right. Get that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it says, you know, blessed are they who have seen. Yes. Like the apostles. And believe eyewitnesses. Right. But blessed are you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have not seen. But you haven't seen. Yeah. You didn't see the miracles. You didn't see Lazarus raised from the yeah. dead. And yet here in Fort Worth, Texas, you've heard the gospel. You've responded to the spirits yeah. uh, pleading. Yeah. There's and, a purity to your faith because yeah. you haven't seen. Yeah. Uh, there's just something really special about that. Yeah. And so, you know, the questioner really is asking, well, what is that special blessing? The answer is we have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know that it's quantifiable sure. in the way the question is being asked. Yeah. I think what Paul's saying is, listen, you... you you, we would say, oh, those capital A apostles, eyewitnesses, that was so special for them to be eyewitnesses. Yeah. I think what Paul's saying, yeah, and it's really special too, when a teenager in Fort Worth hears yep. the gospel and calls upon Jesus Christ yeah. and in tears repents of their sins and makes Jesus the King and Lord of their life, they never saw a miracle, yeah. but they responded in purity and faith to the gospel. And isn't Boy, that, there's isn't some that, special about that's that. That's such a blessing. Well, that's Dave, a wonderful thing. David, when you and I were talking about this this week, about this question in particular, you gave a wonderful analogy where our current president has the same role right. as George Washington. Right. But we look at George Washington and we say, wow, that yeah. was a really special and yeah. incredible moment in time. That's right. That we look back on with kind of an yes. admiration because admiration, he was yeah. you know a launcher of the a pioneer moment, a pioneer yeah. in no, that we don't time. worship george washington we right. don't you know but, he, but his role is the same yeah. as it has been throughout history but, but of the American circumstances presidents. were wildly there different specific circumstances yes. for him that are just not here now and he is it an important it doesn't figure. change the role of presidency no, no he is an important figure and we pay him some honor but right. that doesn't change what we're doing at this moment. And yeah. in fact, we're, we're trying to do new things and great things as, as a result yeah. of the role. Moving Imagine changing, how much you know? bigger our nation is not landmass. Now, of course it's true in landmass, you know, yeah. 13 mm-hmm. colonies to now this massive sure. America that we have. I'd be curious to know, I'm sure it's out there. We should have Googled this, the, the numerical population of citizens Oh, in comparison compared from compared to, now. to yeah. 300 and something million people yeah, that a I'm president sure represents today. Yeah. So you see, I could, I could make this case and I could say, well, president today is a much more, it's a much bigger thing because <laughs> yeah. now whoever the president of the United States is, has this like one of the massive, uh, this massive land mass, yeah. you know, that he's responsible mm-hmm. to govern plus 300 and something million people. Yeah. So one of the biggest nations on Four times more states. Most influential nation on planet Earth. The most mighty military. The biggest economy. See, and I can make this. So whoever the president is today, it's it's a million times bigger than being George Washington. Right. And seeing you guys would want to punch me in the face and say, hey, you can't insult (laughs) George Washington. Yeah, we have to give a amount of respect because he was, you know, a pioneer, like you mentioned. Right. So it's just different times, different circumstances. And, And so it is as consequential as saying... What we just said, the founding fathers versus now. Yeah, They're okay. both important. That yeah. is the point. Yeah. So then moving on to chapters five and six. And again, you, Bobby, did a sermon on Sunday, really doing a great overview of both of these chapters. There have been a couple questions, actually several questions that have come in specific to these chapters. So let me get into the first one. And we got several people who sent in variations of the same question. Hmm. So that means that we know that it is on the hearts and minds of our people. Yeah. Something about these verses in particular really hit a nerve. So I want to read a couple of the questions kind of joined together and just know that this is representative of even more questions. It says this, in chapter five, when addressing the sexually immoral in the church, Paul says to remove them from the congregation, hand them over to Satan and to not associate with them. Wouldn't this be an opportunity to rebuke, correct, and teach a fellow believer? Is Paul speaking a hyperbole for effect, or is he instructing them to literally remove that person from the congregation? Someone else said, when Paul instructed them to hand the person over to Satan and to not even eat with them, it seemed really harsh. How can we reconcile this with the grace that God calls us to extend? Wow, there's a lot there. I'm just making a few notes of things to address as you went through the segments. First of all, let me give me a real short answer. Is Paul speaking in hyperbole? Or is Paul speaking in, you know, realistic language? The answer is both. Yeah. There's both in there. Yeah. So you both have a, a yeah, here's what I want you to do. Right. Literally do this. Put him out of the congregation. 
Yeah. But there's also some hyperbolic language there, mm-hmm. you know, very flourishing. Deliver such a one to over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, which is very dramatically said. Yeah. And boy, just, you know, you get a little chill there and you're like, what is happening right now? Yeah. This is, this is spooky. And as I said, Sunday, it's not an execration formula, which means a curse we place on someone when we excommunicate them. These are the words you should say, mm-hmm. you know, as you wave your hands in the air and everyone says, amen, so let it be. You know, that, that's not what's happening here. So when the questioner says, rather than, you know, the realistic language of put them out or the hyperbolic language yeah. of, of the get, deliver them to Satan, wouldn't this be better to tap the brakes here and say, sure. wait, this could be an instructive moment. Let's use this as an opportunity you know, for a corrective moment and a repenting moment mm-hmm. and a healing moment. And the question was asked in that way. So let me push back a little bit and say, those moments have already happened. Yeah. So what's happened again, this is why when we were preparing this series, we kept circling back to, we need the conversations that have already happened and we don't have them. And at least we keep acknowledging this thing we call zero Corinthians or Corinthians, the prequel, which is not a thing, but a series of communications between Paul and the Corinthians, all of these conversations that we don't have back and forth, but yet we know they happened because the text continually refers to, you said, I wrote to you previously now about the matter you asked me about now, Chloe's report. They keep talking about these letters we don't have called by us zero sure. Corinthians. Mm-hmm. So now when the questioner says, wouldn't this be better to have an instructive healing, sit down, let's go slow moment. No, that's already been happening. Yeah. That's what zero Corinthians is all about. Yeah. There have been conversations. There have been questions. Paul has said, here's what you do. They have totally ignored what Paul told them to do. Instead, they do this. Instead, they do the opposite. These moments have been happening. Mm-hmm. And this is not like, what? There's immorality in the church? Oh, my goodness. Blow everybody up. Yeah. That's, this, that's not what Paul's doing. This isn't the first exit in a long highway. There's been a lot of exits that could have been taken beforehand. And now we're finally coming to the very end of the road where there is an end of the road sign that Paul has to address because they didn't take the exits beforehand. I think, I think that is what's happening. And we know, we know that's true because even in verse nine, it says, I already wrote to you not to associate with these people, which means that you have to assume that this has been an ongoing conversation. He's already instructed them on what to do and how to treat this person and how to, you know, all the things. It's already happened. And and you said this this past Sunday, this is clearly an extreme example. This this isn't somebody sneezes during your sermon, kick them out of the church right now because they're being two ways, David. It's extreme in the type of sin. That's right. And it's extreme in their response. That's right. And you are arrogant. Right. The point is there have been some conversations about reconciliation, repentance, let's do the right thing, let's make some good decisions. And no one is. And so now it's come to a place where it's jeopardizing the gospel. It's Mm -hmm. pulling the church into division. The church is in jeopardy of being destroyed. They're losing face and testimony before the lost community. And Paul is like, okay, we're reaching critical mass here now. Right. We have had conversations. Yeah. We have had moments to do right. And listen, let let me just take it back to, because in your sermon, you famously used this parenting analogy where you talked about your dad and you talked about how father talks to their kids. We're at this moment where a parent says to their child, we need to correct this, stop this. No, whatever the scenario is, Mm -hmm. a parent communicates to a child that consequences are coming. Yeah. And the parent doesn't want those consequences to go to the extreme. The parent wants the behavior to change. Yeah. Who wants crying? Who wants punishment? None of us do. Sure. Let's Not, talk this out. It's much let's easier. Get, let's let's yeah. change behavior. Let's change attitudes. Let's correct the moment. Right. You know, and oftentimes, and I'm use this as an illustration, but it's not a good one because parents shouldn't over talk and not deliver. But, True. you know, I went through the grocery store and I use this in my parenting classes. I heard a parent saying to a child, as I went down one aisle, they were right there and like, hey, you know, Johnny, stop that. Or I'm going to, I'm going to spank you. Right. You know, about five minutes later, I, we're on another aisle and I pass them again and. 
you know, Johnny's, you know, ripping cream corn off the shelf and, and, <laughs> and screaming, I want this and I want that. And, and, uh, you know, Johnny, I'm going to, I'm going to spank you if you don't stunt that, you know, about five minutes later, we're on another aisle. I mean, just scenario. I, we see each other all over the store and Johnny, the little terrorist is just tearing the place apart. <laughs> and, and the parents like, you know, you know, I'm going to spank you. you. Listen, Johnny knows you're not going to spank him. And so does the rest of this crowd. I know you're not going to spank <laughs> yeah. him. You know, you're not going to spank him. And so Johnny, Johnny knows there are no consequences. Yeah, so he's going to keep getting the cream corn. No problem. Uh, yeah, he's just going crazy. Anyway, we have a parenting moment here Yeah, where, you know, at some point, you know, when we're coaching parents, we say, you know, at some point you need to stop talking right. and start acting. And matter of fact, talk little, act a little quicker. Children will then learn that when you talk, it means we need to have a behavior changing moment. Paul has talked and talked and talked to these people. Mm -hmm. We're at the end of the road now. And we're at the end of the road. So yes, we agree that when sin rears its head in our lives, as it will, that we have opportunities for accountability, Absolutely. conversations, repentance, mm -hmm. love, mercy, grace, you know, all of that. And that's the way you want to deal with issues, yeah. whether it's in a church or in parenting or in any situation in life. When sin creates a problem, well, the best situation is let's ask for forgiveness from those we've offended. Let's ask forgiveness from God because all sin is against God and, and let's do the, do the right thing. Yeah. But this is a, this is a what if chapter, right? But what if people won't repent? Yeah. What if the sin is of such a heinous nature that it goes to the extreme? Yeah, not even tolerated among the world. Something, Listen, something it's just so much greater than anyone could the even unsaved anticipated. world would not laugh this off in arrogance yeah this would cause a pagan to blush yeah. what y'all are involved in and i want to keep saying that this is an extreme sin yeah. they've had a extreme non-response yeah. underreaction underreaction <laughs> and now paul's going to give it an extreme resolution i love that you're talking about the extremity of this because there's a nuance to this text that the Corinthians would have really easily picked up on and we completely miss over. And that's in verse 13. Paul gets over saying that, aren't you supposed to judge the people who are on the inside, the people from among you? God judges the outsiders. So remove the evil person from among you. If you have your journal in front of you, underline, remove the evil person from among yep. you and take note because this is actually a direct reference to Mosaic law yep. where God instructs the community to purge the evil from within themselves. I have the reference. I've got an NIV right here in front of me. I'm going to read a couple of those. Yeah. And this is a great catch. And as you said, this is why knowing your Old Testament matters. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because we often talk about, you know, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the things like that as maybe being less applicable to a modern sure. society. We're under the New Covenant, et cetera. And so you might come away from a casual conversation about, you know, where to read in the Bible saying, well, the, the Old Testament's less important. The, lo the Old Testament gives you a set of lenses yeah. to view the New Testament or vice versa. They, yeah. they connect together in such a way that yeah. you really need both of them to get the full picture. Yeah. And what is obvious to the early Christians is not obvious to us because we are not steeped in the Old Testament sure. as they are. And so as you said, Jeremy, when you read, you know, put the evil one out of the church, man, everyone who had any Old Testament grounding mm -hmm. in this first century would have sat up straight and mm -hmm. immediately said, oh, wow, that's right. That sounds like Mosaic That law. sounds like what we've always been taught. That was yeah. the law of Moses and the practice of Israel. And you're right. We forgot all about this is not just a New Testament church truth. Right. This is a israel truth yeah. this is a covenantal truth under the mosaic law so what were what were some of the circumstances that surrounded that being a warranted consequence mm -hmm. so uh, if you have your a pen deuteronomy 13 verse 5 is where one of these first occurrences happens and let me set the context here's what it says in, in deuteronomy 13 if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder and if the sign or wonder takes place and the prophet says let us follow other gods that is an extreme situation gods you have not known no. and let us worship them you must not listen to the words of that prophet let me fast forward 
That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the hand of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you away from the Lord your God and what he commanded you to follow. Now, here's the language. Moses says you must purge the evil from among you. Wow. It shows up again in chapter 17 where it says in context of chapter 17 is worshiping other gods, Mm -hmm. pulling someone away from God, like preaching another gospel in culture, pulling people away from God. Moses uses this language. It is a violation of his covenant. Deuteronomy 17, verse number two, it is a violation of his covenant and contrary to my commandment to worship other gods and bow down to the sun and the moon and et cetera, and et cetera. And then by the time Moses gets to verse seven, he says that person should be put to death by the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. And it just keeps going now. Deuteronomy 17, verse 12, you must purge the evil from Israel. Deuteronomy 19, 19, you must purge the evil from you. So again, when Paul then says, remove the evil person from among you, their minds automatically have a light bulb moment and say, whoa. This is a serious thing that we're talking about because in Mosaic law, this is extreme circumstances met with extreme consequence. And those extreme circumstances tended, it looks like they center around pulling people away from God, dividing the congregation on on what God said and didn't say, turning people towards idolatry, perverting the truth. Sort of sounds like 1 Corinthians. Sort of sounds like 1 Corinthians (laughs) and it kind of sounds like America at times. Sure. And so... When you hear that language, again, you bring up a great point. What isn't an easy transition for us to hear was a very crystal clear moment for these first century hearers to say, oh, this is consistent Mm -hmm. with the teaching of those who follow the one true God, that there are some cases of polluting sin that is so egregious against God if they are arrogant and will not repent then they're going to be removed from the congregation. Yeah. So then there's a second part of this question Mm -hmm. that asks about the reconciliation of this kind of consequence with the grace that Jesus bestows and offers to us. So I would argue that one of the most gracious things you can do with your child is give them discipline. I mean, that, that is one of the most gracious things you can do. You don't want to set up a Veruca Salt kind of person, which was the very whiny girl on the Willy Wonka movie. Mm-hmm. She got everything she wanted as a child, so she's throwing fits the whole time and, she's and there. And not that Willy Wonka is not on the level of <laughs> sacred text. Not at all. But, but you understand but what I'm saying. to give you another equivalent, yeah. the wise man Solomon said that if you didn't discipline your yeah. child, you didn't love them. That's right. That, that one of the signs of, of love and wanting them to turn out to be, you know, responsible grown yep. humans yep. is to teach them that there, there are consequences. consequences to actions. Yeah. Yes. And that there are boundaries yeah. and that all through our lives, mm-hmm. there are authorities that need to be listened to and obeyed. And you just set your child up for success by teaching that at the very youngest age sure. possible. Mm-hmm. Everything goes better the younger this is taught. I feel like you've made a good analogy right there. So, so again, one of the most loving things you can do is to, is to discipline your children. This is what we're seeing here. We're seeing, and we're just coming off the chapter, chapter four, where Paul calls them his children. Yeah. And so now he's dealing with a discipline moment, a very parenting moment, in a very parenting way. And so how, how does grace fit into all of this? Well, there's, there've been a lot of moments where grace was extended and was denied and rejected. Right. So here's you just the thing. Don't, you, don't, you don't have all of That's those right. scenarios That's in right. the text. You know they're there though. Right. Because Paul's, I mean, Paul's alluding to it. Verse nine of chapter five. The curtain five. is now pulled right. back and you're going to get to see the spanking. Yeah. That's, you've just come to the disciplinary moment. Right. And so, and we assume that, oh my gosh, Paul is so mean. Well, you missed all the conversation beforehand. And that's a part of the problem. So grace was extended and it Mm -hmm. was denied. And then the church as a whole doesn't do what Paul instructs them to do, which is to discipline this person. Instead, they're arrogant about what he's doing. And so now we finally come to the end of it. Here's the problem though. We can't use grace as an enabling for sin. What, What did Paul say in the book of Romans? Shall I continue in sin? 
yeah, that absolutely. grace may abound? Absolutely not. His answer was, God forbid that yeah. we would have such a skewed right. interpretation of the grace of God and how our sin offends God, that we would be arrogant about it. And I think, you know, I think the right reaction for a Christian to their sin, mm-hmm. because Christians still sin. Yeah. The way a Christian responds to sin is when confronted by a loving relationship, yeah. you're embarrassed. Yeah. You're ashamed. Yeah, I know that sin's in my life, you know, and now you know it's in my life and you've, you've confronted me on it and I'm ashamed of it. And, you know, and maybe I might say, you know, I'm struggling with it and, and I'm, I'm embarrassed that you, it got this far that mm-hmm. you now had to come and, and talk to me about it. And, I, and I'm so ashamed and sorry. Can you help me? I don't know how to find the way forward. Right. I, I, I'm an addict or I'm, I'm an abuser or I'm sure. a this or I'm just weak or I'm that. Can you help me? Listen, yes, the church will help you. Yeah. Yes, that's, we exist for these moments. And yes, the grace of Jesus Christ extends to those moments. As well. This is what it's all about. And this is the point. That was not the attitude. Well, it, it, you're right. And, that's, and that is why Paul's going to this extreme example. And in that extreme, he still says, but the whole point of this measure, the whole point we're meeting out this discipline is to restore this person. Mm-hmm. And I want to say this again. It worked. Yep. It worked. And how do we know? Because in 2 Corinthians, they restored yep. the man. Yeah. So even, listen, even while we're talking about it, nothing yep. will give you a sick feeling in your stomach than like talking about this issue. Yeah. about immorality being exposed and being disciplined before the church. I mean, this is extreme and it makes yes. us all want to throw up. Yep. Okay. So, you know, I would, I want to keep saying out loud, anyone though that sins and it gets to this point, whatever happens next, the church is doing out of love and rest with the restoration in mind. And I, I said this Sunday, and I want to talk a little bit more about this as we move forward about situational issues mm-hmm. and not, not making this situation, the Bible can't deal with every situation. Yeah. It's giving us some principles. I want, to, I want to develop that a little bit more as we talk this out. But this is why it's so important to have the right leaders in your church, mm-hmm. not to have a vacuum and crisis of leadership, yeah. but to have spirit-filled men and women leading the congregation in a way that they could discern a situation and they could have open communication together and they could, they could keep love and restoration as the ultimate goals. And they could say, we're going to use extreme diligence, extreme care when dealing with these very sensitive and extreme matters. And we're going to reserve only the most extreme biblical punishments, if you would, responses to the most extreme circumstances mm-hmm. and the, the hardest of hearts and the most rebellious of spirits are going to be met with this. But this is not, listen, it, it's, it's a, a defeat for the church to even deal with this. Yeah. The fact that it can't be dealt with in other ways. Mm-hmm. Paul said, you're defeated. And that is what chapter six is, is actually like. About. As he goes into lawsuits, <laughs> right. then he actually uses that language and yeah. says the fact that I see the court docket, Christian A versus Christian B. We're already, we're already defeated. Yeah. We're already defeated before this community. Yeah. we got to clean this up. Yeah. So that's actually a really good segue into the last question that we have that we want to talk about today. It says this, I appreciated Pastor Bobby's take on the matter of absorbing mistreatment as a Christian. Growing up in the church, I wasn't given the context around that passage or to turn the other cheek for Matthew 5. That coupled with verses about marriage from Matthew 19 and fear of judgment from my Christian brothers and sisters left me enduring an abusive marriage for far too long. I think it's important to define the abuse that Paul is talking about here and the importance of setting boundaries for oneself. I'd like to hear more about this topic. And because the title of 1 Corinthians 6 is Lawsuits Among Believers, does that absorption apply to non-believers as well? The language there is incredible that the, the questioner used. And I, I want to start by saying, I'm sorry yeah. that you were, you were trapped in that relationship. And while you were being abused, the Christian community told you, be someone's object of abuse. That's your call of God, which is shameful. 
Yeah. It, it's, that's completely incorrect. And I'm sorry you were subjected to that, but you use this language about take one for the team. You know, we talked about, so if suffer mistreatment, if you're spiritual in your question, you, you said coupled together with Matthew 19. Yeah. Okay. And I just want to, here's, here's where I want to send up the red flag. When we began this study of first Corinthians, we talked a lot about why we were studying in paragraphs and why we were going to really focus on context, why we were going to focus on the situational nature of this letter. Yeah. Because what happens if you just take a verse here mm-hmm. and a verse there, if you take a verse out of 1 Corinthians 5, cobble it together with a verse in Matthew 19, mm-hmm. now you end up giving unbiblical Thus saith the Lord type counsel to people, and you're completely incorrect. We do this on a broad scale in religious circles by not staying faithful to context. You cobble a bunch of random, take a verse from Timothy and a verse from 1 Corinthians and a verse from here, and suddenly now I built this theology with a bunch of cobbled together verses ripped from their context. And I can make that say almost anything I want it to say. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's an abuse. It's an abuse of the Bible. And actually, Matthew chapter 19's context isn't just a blanket statement about what the nature of marriage is necessarily. The Pharisees have a very specific question about, can we just divorce our wives for any and every reason? reason. Yeah. And Jesus is like, no, marriage is important. You can't just divorce for any reason at all. That's correct. And really the principle behind what Jesus is saying is I'm holding, I'm upholding the ideal of fidelity in marriage. That is the ideal. Correct. We want a high view of marriage and your whole view of marriage. Forget the situations you're wanting to talk through, the scenarios your view of marriage right. is incorrect. It's very transactional. It has nothing to do with the covenant that yes. I'm wanting you guys to be in. Let's look back at Genesis chapter one and two, you know? And, and, and I think that we can, it, we, we shouldn't, like you say, conflate verses here in Ch- Matthew chapter 19 with what's happening in first Corinthians chapter six, because they're not, they're not completely cohesive. Now I do think Paul, it, particularly in chapter seven, that's about to come up. He is going to uphold the principle that Jesus is upholding, this beauty of marriage, this high ideal of marriage. Paul is going to want to say, that is what we should want. We should want great marriages. We should want to stay in our marriages. I don't think, though, that Paul is making a blanket statement for every possible situation that could ever happen. Because in the same context of chapter 6, he says, there are those who won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And one of those who won't are abusers of speech. Verbal abusers. So now forget physical abuse, yeah. which is beat worse than this. Yeah. But he's saying just verbal abuse, yeah. psychological abuse, keep extreme physical abuse. Yeah. He takes the most minor of those right. three and says verbal abusers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So get that out of your head right now. And right. such were some of you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but you're washed. Mm. So now let's deal with the. What you just said was, was fantastic. And I want to just draw from that. Now, my takeaway from what you just said is the Bible deals with many different scenarios, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. many different ones as chapter six and seven will deal with many different sexual immorality issues, several different relational issues, Mm -hmm. several different marriage scenarios, unsaved woman married to a saved man and vice versa. Right. You just flip it. Unmarried widows. I mean, there's all kinds of scenarios about to be dealt with. And Paul's trying to speak into their situations that they have been communicating to him about. And several things I want to say, but the one big takeaway from all of the scenarios Mm -hmm. is that the Bible consistently upholds marriage. Mm -hmm. And this is really what you just said. The view of marriage is always upheld. You know, what about this scenario, Paul? What about this scenario, Pharisees say to Jesus? What about this scenario, Okay, and in America today, as yeah. pastors, we have a lot of people ask us, and what about this scenario? Mm-hmm. You know, Pastor Jerry, what about this scenario, Pastor David? Okay, the one thing we want to be in lockstep unity with the Word of God on is that we have a high view of marriage and we always uphold marriage. Yeah. Now, if we can do that as the foundation for this yes. conversation, we are all going to agree that there are some extreme situations yes. and you're going to have to dissolve marriage. Marriages will get dissolved. Paul acknowledges this. 
Moses acknowledged yes, this, which Jesus that talks Jesus about then acknowledged in Moses acknowledging that's right. this. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, those who would say, you know, there is never grounds for divorce, they would make this appeal that there never are. But I would say the Bible is full of appeals that there are grounds yeah. for divorce. And again, due to sin, yeah, due to the hardness of your heart yeah, because so of an sin. exception to the rule. You know? Yeah. And there are going to be sinful scenarios that are created that, again, I want to go back to this specific question for a moment. It's tragic that this person was in a, a, a long abusive relationship and the church condoned, well, it almost sounds like forced them to stay in it. Yeah. That should not have been the, the response, but that's water under the bridge at, at this point. By taking verses and texts that don't connect together and connecting them together, they manipulated someone mentally or spiritually into staying in, in an abusive relationship. Paul says, even if you're a verbal abuser, you're on the grounds of an unsaved person who's yeah. not even going to heaven. Yeah. You're not even getting in yeah. the kingdom of God. If that's your behavior, because that behavior says you're not a Christian. Yeah. That's what that behavior is indicative of. So now you're going to say to I mean, so a woman's being abused by a man verbally, mentally, emotionally, or even physically in yeah. the extreme. I think the scripture is clear the other way yeah. that I have counseled this and I would counsel this. If you came into my office, black and blue week after week, yeah. I'm going to say, well, first of all, you need I, to get safe. First of all, I want to say this. I mean, as a pastor, and this is you guys who I have mentored to be the next generation of pastors. I think this is good to put out in, in the public domain the way we are right now. If I counsel a, a minor, or if a teenager were to come to you, Jeremy, as the former youth pastor, or David as the current youth student pastor, I have counseled you guys to follow this procedure. If a minor comes into you with black and blue marks on them, and you, you notice this is, a, is you know, they didn't, they didn't fall down sure. outside on the playground, but this mm -hmm. is a consistent theme, and you, you immediately have your antenna go up about this and you're like i think this kid's being abused mm -hmm. we will immediately take action yeah i just want this to go out and the action we will take is we will call the police yeah or we'll call child protective services yeah. probably all the above and our elders together yes yeah and we would say we've got a situation that we have to call the authorities we believe this child is being abused in some way now i want to just build on that i'll use a woman because i think it's the most probable case for physical abuse a woman comes in to get counsel with us as the pastors with elders. And again, she's got a black eye and you say, what happened? Well, I, I ran into a door. Okay. And we, we talk for a little bit and she didn't run into a door. You know, she's getting mm -hmm. beat up by her spouse for whatever, you know, I don't know if alcohol is involved or just temper or whatever. It doesn't, doesn't matter at this point. She, she's being abused. We're going to take similar action. Yeah. We're going to call the elders together and say, we've got one of our church members being abused by their spouse. I want delegation of men to go knock on the door over there. We're going to have a confrontation with her husband. We probably will call the authorities and say this woman in our congregation is being abused. We are obligated, mm -hmm. morally obligated to deal with this. Yeah. We do not sweep this under the rug. Yeah. The reason things get extremely corrupt and perverted like they get in the church at Corinth is because, again, you keep hearing this language from Paul. Is there not one person down there at yeah. the church who can make a decision and a judgment to save your life, please find a leader. And he, nobody will stand up and do, do the right things. Well, and I think you, that leads in perfectly to what like is happening in these scenarios and situations. The Bible can't account for every single possible thing that's going to happen in every relational circumstance. That's why it does give us principally how we're supposed to operate in moments like this. And yeah. I think, all of us would agree that there is an underlying need for safety and health above staying in an abusive marriage. Absolutely. Period. And, and I, and I think, and so that's what, that's all I'm trying to get at is, is there has to be, like you said, a group of elders, a group of leaders, a group of people who can surround people in these kinds of situations, With protection and love and help them to discern yeah. what's the best move forward. And right. we're going to use the Bible. Yes, of course. But we're also going to use our discerning minds that God gave us. Okay, so yeah. now this is, this is our interpretation of scripture. We don't cobble a bunch of verses That's together. Right. You know, Matthew has a context. Mm hmm First Corinthians five has right. a context. What Moses was dealing with. There was Moses a context. has a context for right. Israel, you know, in Moses context, he said, take these individuals out 
purge the evil from among you in the verses I read meant take them out. It said, take them out and stone them by the hands of the congregation. Everyone was to participate in the execution Mm -hmm. of these people. Mm -hmm. Wow. You talk about extreme. Yeah. Now that's Moses context and praise God. It's not ours. I wouldn't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. And light of Christ, we're not stoning one another over sin anymore. 100%. 100%. And anyway, context matters. Absolutely. And that's why the, the New Testament isn't written to say, okay, what's your problem? Right. Abuse. Okay, go to the index. A, B, abuse. Right. See pages 37, 52, Mm-mm. 79. Mm-mm. The Bible doesn't work that way. Yeah. Now, it does let you watch how Christ dealt with something, yes. how Peter dealt with something, how Moses yes. dealt with something, That's how Timothy well dealt with something. And from that Bible that God gave us, Holy Spirit filled men and women who lead Cornerstone mm. are supposed to look through the lenses of the scripture yeah. and look through the lenses of the Holy Spirit indwelling yes. them and with discernment say, okay, we have God's spirit and we have the word. Again, I want to be, do what you did a minute ago, David. Yes, we're going to follow the scripture. Yeah. I want that to be a given. Yeah, we're not flipping about scripture no. at all. We're, we're not saying, you know, the Bible doesn't matter and we're going around. Yes, we're going to follow. That is the whole point. Yeah. But discerning men and women who lead the church of God mm-hmm. filled with his spirit are going to come together in council and all agree yeah. Yeah. on what steps should be taken. And we're going to confront mm-hmm. and, and we'll deal with this specific question again, because it's hard to speak in hypotheticals. Yeah. Yeah. But in a context like this, we would have confronted the abuser. Mm-hmm. We would have loved the abused. Yes. We would have asked them to try to reconcile this thing and stop this abusive behavior. And if abuse continued, we would have said the church surrounds this woman yeah. with or, protection. Or if it's at such an extreme level that that's not possible, we're going to surround her with protection. Literal, yeah. physical yeah. protection. Right. Yeah. Whisk her to a safe place. Yes. Call the authorities. Yes. Get this guy in handcuffs yeah. and booked in down at the local police station for abusing his wife. Yeah. And listen, he's still let's just say hypothetically still a Christian and we're going to work for his reconciliation. Mm -hmm. But if he says to the church, Hey, you guys shut up. You're not the boss of me. And we're going to say, wait, you're a part of this congregation. You claim to be one of the blood washed saints down here. Mm -hmm. You know, someone whose faith is in Christ. It is our job to judge you. Right. And you're going to get this right. And if he says, you're not the boss of me, as is happening in Corinth, then we're going to say, Let's call the elders together and we're going to, we're going to exclude this person from yep. the church. Yeah. And again, you're, you're speaking specifically about how we would deal with this at Cornerstone. This is exactly what Paul is instructing the church to do from the end of five into the beginning of six. Don't you guys know that you're supposed to be judging the works and merits of your own people? That's right. Like you're so focused on everyone outside of your, yeah. your community. Yeah. You're so focused on the world and how the world is letting you down and how the world is sinning and antithetical to the morality structure that God set in place. You're so focused on that, but don't you know that you're supposed to judge the people within? You're supposed to be a good discerner of the matters at hand within your own body, um, which then goes into lawsuits too. And so that he talks about, you know, which lawsuits do we pursue and how do we pursue them? And it seems like the way that Paul's dealing with this situation in the beginning of chapter six is you guys have all these little flippant issues that are, that you're dealing with. You've got all these things where you're mad at one person for this one thing or whatever. And we don't know what the lawsuits were. We don't know what they specifically were. We can't know the, to the degree that they were. Mm-hmm. However, the way that Paul's talking about it seems like seriously, that's the lawsuit that you're bringing up. Can nobody have a conversation and deal with this thing? Can't you just be wronged? Right. So now when the questioner asks the question yeah. about the abusive relationship, again, to conflate that with. Can't you just be wrong? Can't you just be, you know, sometimes spiritual people have to suffer abuse and just take it. That is not to be equated with this other situation of marriage abuse. Very different. Right. Right. The right to be able to discern whether or not something is petty enough not to pursue legal action is the same act of discernment that you have to know that an abusive situation is so great that you must remove yourself from the situation. You have the same discerning judgment capability to be able to say, I don't have to create a slanderous view of another believer in the courts of law. You have the same discerning spirit that can say that. And also yep. this person who's being abused 
should not be abused and we are going to do everything in our power to protect them from this abuse. That's because Paul's not laying it, like you've said, a list of rules down. He's giving us principles and situations by which those principles work themselves out. And so we, in like kind, have to follow the principles and the ideals that God lays out for us that Paul upholds. And then we have to work those out in the situations that we find ourselves in. Because see, Paul is not saying a Christian can never be a party in a lawsuit. That's true too. It's Mm -hmm. not what he's saying. Yeah. He's incredulous that there's not one wise person down there that can make a judgment at the church of Corinth so that their petty lawsuits are aired before the unsaved world whose standards and lifestyles the church are in conflict with. You're going to let somebody whose life's in conflict with the church make a judgment about people in the church. And you're harming your witness. And you're over a petty, it appears to be, at least to us from the text. Can't know, but that's what we think. A petty issue. So uh, certainly there are times when a Christian will need to be a party in a lawsuit. And again, Romans chapter 13, there are authorities in place for our benefit, you know? So there are times like, uh, like I think you're going to talk about, there are times in which a Christian does need to go to the law. So let me talk about another, another form of abuse that I've seen in in America and other places. And that's abuse on this lawsuit issue, Mm -hmm. abuse on, so let me see if I can make a hypothetical here real quick. So, so you need, you need some work done on your house. Yeah. Okay. Let's say the hailstorm, you know, damaged your roof and, and so you're going to call out, you know, some people for bids and you get a great bid from someone who seems like a really, you know, sure. n- nice person. They're like, you know, this is a, this is a Christian owned company and, and we want to do right by people and do good work for them. Well, let's say they put a roof on your house. Then a few months later, it starts leaking. Or they do your plumbing and it's wrong yeah. or they do your, Electrical, it doesn't matter, it doesn't any matter. Scenario, yeah. but they do the work. And now you're like, okay, I'm going to have to have the warranty fixed. I'm going to have some warranty work done. So you call back and say, hey, and then they won't do the warranty work because they were really a little shady and fly by night. Sure. And so you're like, gosh, we're going to have to have a lawsuit, you know. To we can't pre- get this resolved after I've tried to talk to this, this person. This is the largest yeah. asset any family owns is right. their home. Yeah. And now it's damaged. And now it may be, it could become unlivable and dangerous. We're going to have to go to the law, which is our recourse and we're going to have to get this made right. Yeah. So now imagine the contractor calling you up and saying, I can't believe you're taking me to court. We <laughs> told you this was a Christian owned company. <laughs> and I want you to know, I have counseled many church members who have been played that card right there. Mm. And they're like, well, you know, these people say they're Christians. Well, then they need to do some, they need to go above and beyond in their right. work ethic and show that's it, also a Christian characteristic exactly. to be and excellent in your tasks by their work yeah, ethic, that's right. that they're willing to make it right. And again, if a person doesn't behave in a Christian way while proclaiming to be a Christian, are they a Christian? And again, I don't want to sit in judgment of no, people's no, no. salvation, but what Paul says is people who are swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah. So what Paul is saying is the behavior doesn't match the profession at least. Right. And so I, again, I want to challenge our our uh, listeners to use discernment. That's, that's the big thing. Paul is dealing with a scenario where he's telling these believers who are in the minority mm-hmm. and the Christians are in the minority in this community. We're trying to win these pagans to Christ and, and, and preach the gospel to them. But you suing each other in their open pagan courts is not helping the scenario. Right. It right. is not advancing the gospel in the kingdom of God. How dare you? take each other to court for such nonsense that does not apply mm-hmm. in a situation where you're being swindled by people here in America in 2021 and you have the courts as a means of getting satisfaction and someone throws out this Christian, well, you can't sue me, I'm a Christian. Well, now you're abusing me. That's right. Mm-hmm. You're abusing me by playing that Christian card as a Again, it's like the, the marriage abuse thing. Well, you can't divorce me. I'm a Christian. Right. We're not allowed to get divorced. You have to stay in the marriage. Let me beat you up every night. Right. Well, that's a perversion of, of the teaching of Big scripture. Time. Absolutely. And so it is also a perversion for Christians then to do less than their best in the business world and, and play that card against people. Because there is a moral and ethical implication to the gospel, yeah. period. I think you were starting to bring that up a little bit. There, there absolutely is a way you should live your life in light of the fact that you've been saved by Christ. We believe that when you are born again, 
it puts you on a path to sanctification. I'll use a better word or easier to digest sure. word for the listener. A path of transformation. That's right. To become more like Christ by allowing the Holy Spirit inside of you to begin to change your worldview, yep. begin to change your attitudes, begin to change your heart, begin to therefore change your behavior. And that's a process that begins to happen when you're born again, as the Holy Spirit mm. starts to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. If there is no transformation and no conforming, something is deeply, yeah. deeply broken. Man, those were some fantastic questions. And I love that the questions show the amount of care that our listeners are taking to responding to the text. You know, these are not just entry level points. No. These are people who have really been digging into scripture. So we just want to very loudly and clearly say how much we appreciate how you have all been engaging in this content. And we want you to continue. We want to keep hearing your questions. We want you to continue being a part of the conversation. So as things come up in your own personal study, we'd love for you to text your comments, feedback, and discussion to 817-809-3040. Again, this has been such a wonderful and enriching thing for us as the pastoral team at Cornerstone to engage with you and to engage with the text. And we can't wait to continue this conversation in future episodes.